In a previous episode of The Fiona Show, R&D Tax Credit, we compared the regular research credit, or the RRC, with the Alternative Simplified Credit, or ASC. But the nature of the comparison didn't allow us to go that deep into the nature of either. Today, we're going to investigate one of these calculation methods in depth, the ASC, or Alternative Simplified credit. With R&D being such a hot topic of conversation as the U.S. enters what could be called a post-pandemic reality, the alternative simplified credit is top of mind for many companies who think of the other methods as too complicated, especially those newer startups who may not have been born in the 80s, let alone conducting R&D back then. Though, just to be clear, R&D professionals are always happy to explore every calculation method to get you the best credit you can. Nevertheless, to the degree the ASC deserves its name as the simpler of the two, that's worth a deeper dive. And someone who's perfectly suited to do it, our guest today, Dr. Andrew Finley, Associate Professor of Economics Accounting at Claremont McKenna College. He's also the co-author of a research paper entitled The Effectiveness of the R&D Tax Credit, Evidence from the Alternative Simplified Credit. And I'll hand things over to the Director of R&D Tax Incentives at Cross-Border Solutions, Rahim Walji, who will lead today's discussion. The floor is yours, Rahim. Thank you, Matthew. Really appreciate that. And welcome, Andrew. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Really looking forward to our discussion. So, Dr. Finley, can I start by asking you what interested you and your co-authors, of course, enough to study the effects of the alternative simplified credit, and, and what's your interest in R&D in general? Yeah, so my background was in public accounting, and I had worked in a group that did a lot of R&D credit claims for clients before going back to the doctoral program and transitioning into academia. And so kind of going through that process, I was there in public accounting when this ASC method was introduced. And so while in public accounting, we were you know focused on kind of helping the company identify their qualified research expenditures, document them, and file the credit claim. But, you know, from a broader academic sense, I never really got a sense of understanding, okay, is this, you know, tax subsidy being offered by the government really achieving its intended purpose of incentivizing research and development? And so that was something that, you know, I was able to kind of explore going into academia with my co-authors where we have a large data set of public companies and we're able to look at, okay, what was their spending on R&D and after and document and quantify the effects of this policy on incremental R&D spending. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. And you mentioned that unlike prior R&D tax credit changes, The ASC credit, of course, did not replace the prior credit calculation. It was in addition. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, in your research, the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1989 was and the differences between its credit calculation method and the alternative simplified? Yeah. So in our paper, we talk about the history a bit, but when the R&D tax credit was first introduced in 1981, uh, the format was similar to the current ASC method in that companies would be given a credit based on their incremental research. And with that initial credit, it was, you know, based on the excess of prior year's research, but it had to exceed 100% of prior year research. And so there would sort of be a punishment or companies would get penalized 
if they have really high R&D one year, because that would decrease or perhaps preclude the company from getting any credits in subsequent years. So in 1989, Congress, they kind of switched the method for calculating the R&D credits to, you know, what in our paper we call this OBRA through the Reconciliation Act used to pass the credit. I think now it's just called the regular research credit as well. And what that did is it fixed the base percentage used to measure incremental R&D to the period leading up to when that act was passed in 1989. And so that may be seen fine and well for, you know, the periods immediately after that act was passed in 1989 and measuring your base percentage in the mid 80s. But as time goes on, it became an increasingly archaic way to measure incremental research by comparing what you're doing maybe in the 2000s to what you had going on in the 1980s. And I remember that from practice working with clients when we would go in and help clients with research claims. And part of that, when we were kind of limited to only using this regular research credit, was needing to go out and talk to engineers, long retired engineers from the companies, to try to pick their brain about what they were doing in the 1980s. And I just remember sitting there trying to interview engineers thinking like this cannot be the best way to try to document or substantiate incremental research. So I think Congress became attuned to some of the flaws in that, you know, not only the difficulty in documentation, but also some of the companies that were getting precluded from the credit just because they may have had really high fixed base percentages based on the 1980s. So, you know, 2007, the ASC was introduced. And I think one thing that is very favorable to taxpayers is the government did not drop the traditional credit. That's still available to taxpayers, but now you can choose which method to employ. So the drawbacks to the method pre-OBRA or the research credit, which may have kind of penalized companies based on the recent research, that's kind of mitigated because, you know, instead of having to have the research exceed 100% of prior years, it only has to exceed 50% of prior years. And then also, you know, even if that prior research decreases the current year research claim, the companies can still use the traditional method to calculate their credit and take the larger of the two. Right. It gives you at least sort of a, which is the better option, right? You can look at your prior three years. If you've had a a good increase, you know, that may be a good way to look at it. If you've got the regular opportunity still available and you've calculated it before, you're one of those startup firms that looked at it in the nineties, you know, you at least have a couple of options. Yeah. So you cited studies that indicated that pre-OBRA calculation methods didn't seem to increase R&D spending. Why was that the case? Yeah, and there could be a couple of reasons. You know, anytime kind of looking at archival data and trying to measure effects of a tax policy, you know, the results could be sensitive to the time period examined and the sample firms used. But I think from a theoretical sense, the argument for why credit structure wasn't incentivizing research is that firms would be penalized going forward if they had a lot of research in one year. Again, because that research credit had been structured where the current year credit is a function of prior year's research activity. And if you have to exceed 100% of the prior year research, larger credit today would mean a smaller credit in a subsequent year. And so that's one, that's the theoretical plausible reason for why companies may not have responded by increasing research. And the ASC 
you know, partially alleviates that because even though the credit is still based on incremental research, it's only needing to exceed 50% of the prior year QREs instead of 100%. And so even if you have incurred a lot of research expenditures, that's not going to penalize you as much in subsequent years when calculating the credit. No, great point. And in your paper, you mentioned you were a bit surprised at the impact the introduction of the alternative simplified credit had on R&D spending. What were your initial expectations versus how things actually played out? Yeah, I mean, so I think the theory cuts both ways, or there's kind of two opposing theories when examining this question. And, And the null hypothesis is that, you know, because the ASC, the current structure, which takes the incremental research 50% over prior research, doesn't require companies to increase spending to get a credit benefit currently. And so, you know, in some sense, that could allow companies to just keep doing the same thing they were already doing and still get a credit. And so you wouldn't then observe any increase in R&D spending. You know, the flip side is that incremental research still provide a larger benefit. It still lowers the after-tax cost of research, and then you would expect to see some effect. I think one of the more, I don't know if I'd call surprising, but something that I don't think had been examined before is looking at how many firms were excluded from the R&D credit when only the traditional credit was available. You know, I acknowledge that there was this kind of other alternative incremental credit available prior to the ASC, but my recollection is that was pretty small, but you know, our paper we were seeing that of R&D conducting firms, you know, only about 73% were eligible for an R&D tax credit. And when the ASC came in and it kind of expanded the pool of firms eligible for the credit, we were seeing that 98% or so became eligible to take the credit. And so there's a drastic increase in eligibility that happened as a result of this credit. Understood. So those were your findings. In relation to, you know, I think you looked at it from two angles, right? Whether previously ineligible firms would increase their spending after becoming eligible and then whether prior eligible firms would increase spending, right? And so I think you mentioned the 73% and the 98%. Those were the the, sort of the results of those findings. Yeah. So those are just sort of looking descriptively as to the population of firms and who was eligible before and after. And so, you know, we kind of see that difference our firms, you know, essentially 25% became newly eligible. The more formal analysis we're looking at in terms of the change in spending, we were able to kind of break out the the firms into three buckets. So you had one group of firms who were, and that would kind of be our baseline group, that were taking the credit under this over our traditional regime prior to ASC, and it still yielded a larger tax benefit after the introduction of the ASC. So in effect, that's a control group where this tax policy isn't expected to have any effect on their behavior. You know, what our treatment groups are, it's two different treatment groups. One is the firms that weren't eligible under OBRA, perhaps because they had a disproportionately high base percentage in the prior years or really high sales volume in the last four years. And so they weren't eligible under the traditional method, but they became newly eligible for an R&D tax credit. And then the second treatment group would be these firms that were eligible for the OBER credit, but the credit amount that they became entitled to became larger under the ASC credit. And so we call those ASC switch firms. Again, the ones that weren't previously eligible, we call them new firms or ASC new firms and ASC switch firms. 
And we found evidence that both of those increased their spending. You know, in fact, I think one thing that was a little surprising is in some specifications, it was the switch firms who they were previously already getting a credit, but they just become eligible for a larger credit. And their spending increased more than some of the new firms did in some specifications. Thank you very much for clarifying that. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai slash rd. That's xbs.ai slash rd. Now, the results of this study have, have aged a little bit, right? It's been a few years, and the period you studied was prior to the enactment of, of a few other pieces of legislation, for example, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and other aspects of certain legislation that may have affected R&D. And without getting too speculative, of course, you know, I'm curious if you have a sense of how things have progressed since the paper was published. Did you, did you get a sense from your research that the alternative simplified credit would remain this robust source of new R&D spending, or did it seem like it was a trend that might decline? What are your thoughts there? I think there's a couple things that have happened. And again, our sample period stopped in 2010. And you know, our sample period, we looked at the years 2003 through 2010. And you know, within the sample period, the ASC rate increased from 12 to 14%. And so if we were to kind of look out at a longer window when the rate has continued to be at 14%, you could plausibly see a larger impact than what we were seeing when it was just a 12% rate. More recently, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that you know got rid of the corporate AMT and the R&D credit as a general business credit had previously been limited, the tentative minimum tax. And so you know I could envision theory where now if you don't have that kind of restraint, that could plausibly increase R&D more. You also have more incentives for kind of intellectual property development being done in the U.S. with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act under FIDI. You know, I'm not sure if that's contributed to increases in an R&D, but that in conjunction with, you know, higher rate could plausibly stimulate additional spending. And then the other thing that, you know, I think came enacted just before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was you know, this ability to use the tax benefit to offset payroll taxes. And that's always been kind of a criticism of the R&D tax credit is you have these innovative firms that are maybe in a loss position that wouldn't derive any benefit currently from conducting R&D. And so, you know, I think Congress recently or in the past few years having allowed companies to use this credit to offset a payroll tax could provide a current benefit. And so that could increase the stimulative aspect of the ASC. No, great point. And let's talk a little bit about the payroll offset. So, you know, as you mentioned, for some of these startup firms, especially who, who 
are not necessarily generating a lot of tax liability, right, that they have to pay back, this is the way that they can really derive value from this particular tax credit. Are you aware of any potential proposals to open up this kind of, of non-income tax monetization, you know, that might be more valuable than potentially increasing the credit rate itself? No, at the federal level, I, I'm not. I think, you know, there's been some developments at, at state and local levels. There's also, I think, been talk about whether we should make the credit refundable, which I'm not sure has gotten any serious traction in policy proposals. But one aspect in maybe if we're talking about other policy points that I was reading recently um, mm-hmm. is with state legislation. And at least at the state level in Texas, I think what they're doing, they actually be curtailing, but they had a sales tax exemption on qualified research expenditures. And I think the policy is actually kind of restricting the sales tax exemption, but you could imagine that at the state and local level and other jurisdictions, certain supplies that would be eligible for qualified research expenditures, some states may be looking to, you know, provide for sales tax exemptions on that. Good point. And that's what I was trying to get at is I feel like there are some different ways that this incentive can be structured, maybe not necessarily, because if you think about, you know, you're in a lost position, you're not paying a lot of income tax, even with taking it down to to AMT and and having that AMT turn off. And then it doesn't really matter if you're, you know, getting 12%, 14%, 20%, right? You're, You're essentially carrying it forward as opposed to something that could provide a lot more direct benefit and more immediate benefit. Yeah. And, you know, especially because these are startup companies or innovative firms that, have cash constraints, having a, a carry forward out into the future, you know, is not going to be as valuable to them as finding the way to get cash into their coffers right away. So, you know, it's pretty unavoidable that we have to bring up how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted things, right? Some companies have laid off workers and really rolled back or, or halted their R&D efforts or, you know, redirected where those employees are you know, focusing their efforts. One can only imagine that startups, you know, newer, smaller businesses are the ones that are, are getting hit the hardest. How might the pandemic and potential subsequent recessions affect interest surrounding the raising of, of the ASC credit percentage? Right now, you have the ASC credit set at 14% compared to the OBRA rate at 20%. And so I, I think there's been a push to maybe try to bring parallel between those two rates. At least in our paper, you know, within the sample firms that we examine, there's still a significantly or disproportionately larger number of firms using that traditional method compared to the ASC. And so I think there would be interest in pushing that ASC rate closer to, to what the traditional rate is. You know, in our paper, we were able to quantify or give an estimated quantification on the benefit. And, you know, our paper found that every dollar foregone tax revenue stimulated $2.26 in increased spending. I had mentioned some reasons why arguably that stimulative impact could just be increased in more recent years due to some other tax policy proposals. So we're in an economic environment where you have cash constraints, tax credits, you know, provide one opportunity to get cash back into companies' coffers as a way to stimulate additional R&D spending, which, you know, I think there is some consensus, you know, across the political aisle that this is a desirable form of economic investment. Is raising the rate on ASC, you know, the only course of action? Are there other alterations to, to either the ASC or other aspects of R&D that might make it more beneficial? You know, I'm, I'm, of course, thinking about 
expensing and deducting in the year and the amortization over five years that's potentially upcoming. Any thoughts around that or any other areas that you know are sort of ripe for improvement? Yeah, I mean, that forced amortization of R&D expenditures is something you know, I've kind of heard companies are very sensitive to and trying to push back on that could take place next year. And that would affect R&D credit claims as well. But specific to the R&D credit claim, I mean, you know, we can kind of talk about with any tax policy that you can either change the rate or change the base. And certainly changing the rate seems like the more straightforward approach. But the other way Congress could go about doing it is, is changing the base. And, you know, that base, again, it's made up of wages, supplies, and contract research expenditures. Now, you know, there's kind of been some gray areas to what kind of supplies should be qualified. But if you kind of relax the restrictions there, or expand that pool, that could be one way to increase credit benefits. Likewise, with contract research expenditures that I believe only qualify for up to 65%. You you can make the base larger by increasing that percentage as well. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp any thoughts on whether the u.s will ever go to a volume-based credit like some other countries where it's just a percentage of the current year expenses as opposed to an incremental approach i don't have a good sense as to whether that would happen i mean other than it seems like the current administration is trying to develop some global tax kind of conformity or at least pushing this idea of a minimum global tax that, you know, I think all countries, at least in a competitive environment, are sort of constrained in their tax policy into what other countries are doing. And you're competing for resources. And if other countries are providing resources for R&D in a certain way, that makes it easier to calculate or provides larger benefits that kind of increases the impetus for the U.S. to follow suit and to not fall behind in terms of the incentives to conduct R&D domestically. Absolutely. Who knows? We may even eventually catch up to New Zealand where they uh, do an early credit system, right? You get your credit in advance based on anticipated spending and help get that cash infusion early. Yeah, I I wasn't familiar with that. I could imagine there could be some uh, administrative challenges with that. Of course, of course. So, you know, where do we go from here, right? It's one thing to propose a higher ASC credit percentage, right, in terms of the benefit. What are your thoughts, again, without speculating, of course, what are your thoughts on the likelihood that we actually see this rate go up, given the administration, the pandemic, and and other variables that might be influencing it? 
Yeah, I mean, the administration, similar to the Obama administration, where even though they were looking to increase taxes or were were reluctant to cut corporate taxes, I think the R&D credit was one area in which they didn't want to make corporate tax any higher. And so I think in terms of the overall tax environment, especially if they increase the rate on corporate income, that may allow a little more flexibility to provide for a larger ASC rate to kind of soften the blow from from the increased corporate tax rate. As Matt mentioned in the opening, you know, the ASC isn't the only option for calculating the credit, but based on your research and, and what you're seeing or, or, you know, anecdotally, is it in fact the preferred method? And if so, you know, just your opinions on why it is the preferred method. Well, it's certainly the easier method uh, in terms of, you know, doing the documentation and having gone through the process and having clients been audited by the IRS and the challenges of providing documentation of research that was done in the 80s. Certainly, it's a lot easier to provide documentation on what was done over the last three years. So I think that makes it a really attractive option. You know, also just in terms of how do we want to measure R&D where we're not looking at it as a function of sales, which could penalize companies who may have high research, but you know, especially in the pharmaceutical industry, if they, you know, had a blockbuster drug that just came out and their sales explode one year and their research intensity may not be able to ramp up as quickly and they end up losing out on the credit, the ASC would still provide some benefit there. I think in general, you know, my personal opinion would be that, you know, the ASC is a better policy than the traditional OBRA, although I think kind of retaining the optionality is, you know, very, very beneficial, again, because that ASC method has a little bit of penalty for what you had done in the prior years. Of course, it softens the penalty relative to the regime that was in place in the early 80s, but kind of keeping that OBRA means you're not punished at all for what you had done in the last three years in terms of research. No, great points. Great points. So Andrew, given your well-steeped in academia, are you aware of, you know, sort of what are the other hot topics right now that other peers, other folks, you know, in that environment are are looking into with respect to R&D or calculation methods or industries or anything along those lines? Yeah, I, I think in the R&D aspect, the literature is moving to not only looking at you know, how does tax policy incentives increase R&D spending, but, you know, how does it affect corporate innovation more broadly? And, you know, some of the literature is looking at when we talk about corporate innovation by looking at patents filed and approved and that kind of being more of an output measure. And, you know, there there has been some evidence that some tax policies, whether it be an R&D credit or certain countries in their patent box regimes, is actually associated with innovation. Now, you know, that would be kind of be the natural extension or conclusion from a study like ours, which finds that this policy is associated with an increased input. But, you know, it's also important to evaluate whether we actually see increase in outputs that are welfare improving to society. Andrew, thank you very, very much for taking the time to to give us your insights and share your expertise and talk to us about the study and the research that you and your co-authors performed. It was really, really insightful. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. 
Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. We want to thank Dr. Finley and Rahim for being with us today and for another very insightful discussion. We want to thank everyone at home for joining us. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. <laughs>